send a message to Zoe. I don't want to because she's intimidating. <laughs> so I turned up at just the right time. <laughs> well, actually, let's just get introductions over with first because thankfully Andy isn't here. Or they're usually the one that um, fucks it up. It's going to be someone else today. Would you like to start, bro? No. Oh my fucking god. Why are these... Why I think have, Zoe should start first. Let's go in have, reverse alphabet. Fine, fine. Why have we made this? Shut the we, fuck up so that I can just do the intro. Thank you. I'm Zoe. I'm Fibwick. I'm Broletariat. Zoe, I wanted to say this while you're here specifically because you brought up something that really piqued my interest and I've still been thinking about it. Okay. You said something along the lines of that Biden is like a, he's a professional imperialist. And it got you thinking, and I know, I know you said you voted for Biden, but it made you thinking that maybe... It's possible that he Yeah, I, I got spooked at the idea of not being able to obtain health insurance at all, period, because of my pre-existing condition. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, I can't vote, but my mom's in the same position. I know that's why she voted for Biden mainly. But yeah. But then you kind of had maybe second thoughts because of how much of how incompetent Trump is as an imperialist and how maybe in the grand scheme of things for like uh, the greater consequences involving the entire world, not just America, how Biden, how Trump may have actually been better in terms of other countries and I was wondering if you could elaborate on that because I know that just really that's just really interesting to me and I had never thought of it like that before I don't really have a question but I thought it was just really interesting well um the rest of the world has a really negative opinion of Trump you know he's kind of a joke to them and they don't take him seriously and it seems like it's been kind of an impetus for them to you know start sliding away from America dip, you know diplomatically and a little bit economically, especially with China's Belt and Road Initiative and, you know, improving prospects for investment there. But Biden, I mean, he's a creature of the establishment. He knows all the rules that the game has historically been played by. He can put kind of a more respectable face on U.S. imperialism, you know, kind of set us back in the track that we've been following for the past couple decades. But the problem is that the material conditions are still changing. And while that you know, respectability, that experience with the establishment might in some ways be able to slow the process, it's still going to carry on. I mean, there's nothing anyone can do at this point, I think, that is going to arrest the fall of the U.S. Artie's probably going to join. He, he sent me a draft and he's like, I was like, oh, I'm reading it now. And he's like, what's taking so long? And I was like, it's a really long draft. And I was like, I'm making excuses. And <laughs> yeah, I was like, hey, you want to join get, the podcast? Get Artie in here. So I think it'd be easier at this point for me just to explain what's happening right now with this edit in. Um, so at this point, midway through, per, uh, a person named Artie joined the podcast who... You've definitely heard us talk about on the podcast, but in case this is your first episode, Artie is someone who also writes for a publication, Anti-Capital, and he's kind of a legend in the book club. Now, we had some tech issues with with an echo when me, Brol, or Zoe speak, but I think it's worth it to get the content from Artie. Like, without any kind of just on the spot, we've, it turns out we've got a special guest for this episode, um, Artie who is kind of a legend in the book club. 
Yeah, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> I'm not prepared at all for this. Let's just start. Uh, I'm, an, I'm an old man. I've been involved. Uh, Marx, not personally, but his work, Marx's critique of political economy for about 50 years. And uh, and I've been thrown out of every uh, every group or left-wing discussion forum I was ever in. And then uh, then Bro got thrown out of one, too. We both got thrown out of Rob and, uh And he started Red Marx and invited me to come aboard. And I did. And then after the election of what, what was his face, Trump? Well, I shouldn't say that. I should say before 2016, I was also involved with Lauren Goldman and Surgeon Notes, but I left because the Surgeon Notes couldn't get its uh, couldn't get its act together enough to actually put out a uh, schedule uh, for its production. So I left because schedules are very important. And uh, then the, then I started to work with Bro on Anti Capital, and uh, and you know six years or five years later, that's where we are. That's it. I'm only five years older. And we uh, don't have a schedule for our own publication through anti-capital, amusingly enough. Yeah, but we're only two people. We don't pretend to be anything other than two people, right? Insurgent notes claims to a certain uh, notoriety. Well, the the conversation that we were having just before you joined was kind of a little kind of old news, I guess, now. But it was about um, uh, Biden and something Zoe brought up about Biden being a kind of professional imperialist compared to Donald Trump, who is, while obviously incompetent at being a president, also incompetent at imperialism and um, and how that might ultimately have a better outcome internationally and not just within our own, within the United States. Well, I, you know, I, I agree with that because, I mean, the damage that Trump did to the uh, quote-unquote Western alliance is pretty significant. Um, and, you know, undermining NATO, undermining the European Union and the Atlantic Alliance, I mean, who could ask for anything more? Um, it's, but it's probably much more representative of a general trend in capitalism as, as, uh, as profits get harder to achieve and as there's greater competition in the markets, particularly from China and the, the squabbling over markets. It's probably much more indicative of capitalism as a general state than simply the decline of the U.S., although the decline of the U.S. is pretty significant. So much of this is old news now. It's kind of annoying me. I know I keep saying that, but it goes back to <laughs> the thing relating to the, um, the rise of the capital, I saw something on, it was, uh, I saw a tweet that was bringing up the idea that was addressing the lack of a leftist response to the, uh, kind of coup attempt at the capital. And it was, and, it, and what, it, what it was saying essentially was that the lack of a leftist response was a result of white supremacists, um, combating liberals there, uh, the people currently in power, but not representatives of the working class. Which I feel like, while that's true, I also feel like the lack of a leftist response response was largely in part because there couldn't have been one, and because yeah, that sounds that sounds more accurate. Yeah, and and like even and if we and if there could have been one, I think that probably would have been better because while obviously our current liberal uh, bourgeois politicians are fucking shit, they're not. They're probably. At least in my opinion, there would still be, it'd be worse to have a literal fascist in power, or am I wrong? (laughs) No, you're not wrong, but but the question is, what does it really take to to respond to a real fascist in power? You know, it's it's not, I mean, the classic example was Chile with uh, Pinochet and Allende. Um, Allende wasn't going to be able to stop Pinochet. Only mobilization of the workers in Chile could have done that, but that was the one thing that Allende would not do, would rather die than do, and he wound up dying rather than doing it. So uh, I think it's uh, it's not a question of who's better or worse. The question is, what does it take to really stop it? And it, you know, it, it's an old trope, but it re- it really does take an action, a class action, to defeat something like this. It really does take a class action. I know there were, you know, there was all talk. There was a lot of talk among union bureaucrats of 
of threatening general strikes if the, if the election wasn't certified. And, uh, and that was the first time I've ever heard union bureaucrats actually even contemplate, you know, some sort of general widespread labor action, although Trump uh, put an end to it as quickly as he could. But uh, I think, you know, that, that would have represented an opportunity if, in fact, the uh, head of the uh, flight attendants union had called a strike. That would have been something really to, you know, try and connect with. Or um, if the uh, longshore uh, workers unions had, you know, called the strike, that would have been something, a real response that really would have been significant. I don't think a leftist response defending uh, the electoral college or the, or the, uh, or, uh, <clears throat> or the uh, right of uh, election to be certified is is, is where you're going to get much bang, much return on your uh, effort. And I think that ties in pretty well with where we're at at the moment in our reading of the history of the Russian Revolution, where, like you were just saying in Chile, um, Allende would not call upon the working class to depose of Pinochet or defeat Pinochet in the same way that the liberal bourgeoisie in Russia could not harness or call upon the working class movement or a peasant movement to oust the czar. They couldn't bring themselves to actually take the czar out of power because their interests were so intertwined with czarist interests that by calling or, or by attempting to topple the czardom, it would call the working class into the streets and the peasantry out and they would find that they had deposed themselves more or less, just as Allende would have wound up deposing himself by putting by calling for a class response, because once the class gets mobilized, they're not going to be, or they shouldn't be, content with simply stabilizing the status quo. Once they've achieved any sort of level of power, they're going to reach farther beyond what sort of spurred the movement to begin with. Well, that's exactly right, because particularly in Russia and in Chile, there were organizations of working class power that were had been taken over by the class independent of the bourgeoisie or independent even of the, the liberal wing of the social democrats as the soviets became more and more uh, militant in demanding um, an end to the war and the uh, and the no support for the provisional government and in chile you had cordonas which had uh, broken the bourgeoisie's lockout before the uh, Act, the uh, actions of Pinochet, and then uh, Allende, and particularly the Communist Party of Chile, went about trying to dismantle the Cordonas as, as quickly as possible. It's a, it's a, it's, uh, it's a, a delicate situation, to say the least. Look at what happened in Russia, and another example in Russia, is, um, when the uh, Kornilovs threatened the Soviets, right? And uh, and the, uh, the Bolsheviks took and the Soviets took full advantage of that to issue instructions saying that no order from a provisional government official should be acted upon unless it's countersigned by an officer of the Soviets. That's the sort of moment when uh, when the class has is actually coming forward as a class as a new ruling class. That's the sort of moment that is uh, is what we all work for. You know, that's that's the big moment. Def- defending Nancy Pelosi is not in that moment, although. Needless to say, defending Nancy Pelosi from the mob might at some point be the tactically right thing to do. You know, it's a mob of fascists trying to string up and abuse Nancy Pelosi. You, then you have a, a, the ability to uh, intervene in that. You do. The same way as if, uh, you know, anybody trying to abuse a person because of, I mean, let's be clear, they're not abusing Nancy Pelosi because they have any deep-seated class antipathy towards Nancy Pelosi. Right. They're just they're just fascists, and uh, it's the same thing as if they were harassing, uh, and particularly because Nancy Pelosi's a woman. They're and they're really just the the 
anti-women woman content of these demonstrations is just horrifying. You know, they, they go after the, the, the squad and Nancy Pelosi. And of course, there's Mike Pence, but, but the anti-woman content is just nauseating. It's just really gruesome. Yeah, it's horrifying. It's horrifying. And yeah, the, it absolutely. And the trick yeah. in defending Nancy Pelosi in that context would be to ensure that the defense of Nancy Pelosi does not results simply in the consolidation or defense of Nancy Pelosi's power, not that it's her power personally, but that in playing an active role in quashing a fascist insurrection, you then attempt to wedge yourself into playing an active role in governmental policy moving forward, not just so that you can hand that power back to the state. The most important thing is to recognize that it's that this demonstration, these sort of demonstrations, these attacks are an index to the sort of decay, the crumbling away of the bourgeois liberal edifice, that it isn't quite enough anymore to uh, manage the exchanges and the circulation in the capitalist system. It isn't returning enough on the dollar. It's starting to crumble. And uh, so you need something to replace it. And that's not going to be... a, you know, another uh, a 78th Congress or a 79th Congress or an 80th Congress. It needs a total shift in class basis. Structure needs structure needs a new class basis. Um, so you can defend Nancy Pelosi because Nancy Pelosi shouldn't be abused. You know, she maybe she should be you know put up in front of a workers' tribunal and called to account, but she shouldn't be uh, hunted down by uh, night riders and vigilantes and Ku Klux Klaners. Class, you know, class, class is everything. Yeah, it's a good point. I never really thought about that. Because I've always had a kind of, I guess, an apathy in regards to seeing the, like, abuse of people that I don't, that I feel I have some kind of resentment towards because of, like, class crimes, so to speak. But, like, I never really think about why they might be receiving that abuse from figures, from, like, white, from, like, white supremacist figures or, like, uh, just fascists in general. Well, it's, it's well worth thinking about. Um, I mean, look, um, what was it, in 2010, when the Affordable Care Act was passed, you know, I mean, John Lewis was attacked, was spit upon as he left the Congress by the Tea Party clowns for voting for the act. And there were actual acts of terrorism against several uh, residences born in Democratic representatives by these uh, Tea Party maniacs, which form the core of the MAGA people anyway right now. But, you know, as, as bourgeois or liberal Democrat, Kind of social democratic politician John Lewis was, he wasn't being attacked because he was a revolutionary. He was being attacked because the simple fact of the matter is he's black and these people are racist. You know, it's, it's the same way as if um, the Ku Klux Klan went after Jesse Jackson or, or even somebody is, uh, who, strike, who, who makes my skin crawl personally, Al Sharp. You, know, you just cannot well, yeah, okay, now you're pushing me to the wall. <laughs> but uh, that's, yeah, I mean, if somebody's going to be, look, if the Democrats ha- had a rally, if Hillary Clinton held, held a rally defending uh, a woman's right to abortion and the Tea Party or the Trumpists or somebody attacked that, dem- that, that rally, we would defend the rally, right? Yeah. We, would, we would try and stop the uh, fascists from attacking that because because they're not they're not concerned with the nuances of whether Hillary Clinton's a bourgeois politician. Their real target is hold on, they're coming to get me. <laughs> <laughs> Very funny.
their real target is the women, the working class women who need the right, who need the access to medical care in order to live a decent life. That's the real target. So you have to identify the real target. And if that means you wind up defending a democratic rally, that you're defending the democratic rally because the real target is the right of women to have access to reproductive medical care. It's a, it's a very fine line sometimes, but you've got to keep, you've got to keep yourself grounded in what's actually going on. The target isn't, the target that we're defending is the goal that they're trying, that the Democrats yeah. are fighting for, not the Democrats themselves. Right. They're the, Hillary Clinton's just a just just an obstacle for them to get at, just as uh, Allende was an obstacle for Pinochet to get at what he really wanted to get at, which was all the thousands of independent leftists and the workers that had, you know, so effectively broken the bourgeoisie's lockout by using the cordonas to organize production. So that's so he just got rid of Allende so that he could get more direct access to his real target. Well, you know, that that's what we have to deal with. So does it look like, uh, I mean, the Pinochet thing was a classic. Uh, Allende got on the radio that morning. Troops were moving towards the presidential palace and told the workers to stay indoors, to actually stay indoors. He got on the radio and said that. Um, any working class that had a real organization behind it would have been calling people out in the street to meet and 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 uh, repulse the uh, military uh, coup. Do we want to shift gears maybe a little bit and we can talk about? What's currently happening on a very micro scale between anti-capital and uh, the whole the whole fictitious capital thing, Artie? If you want, I would love that. Though I don't really know what fictitious capital means. I know nothing on this subject. Well, that would be that would be kind of where yeah. I would start. Just um, yeah, I am not familiar with the subject either. So I'd like to hear about it. Um, well, hold on, hold on. Let's get a drink of water first, and then I'll I'll be right back. You you three or four. Carry on without me for a brief time, okay? He thinks there's four of us. The old man's gone senile. <laughs> well, it's the echoes. It's the echoes. It's the echoes. This it's makes like extra us, voices. Really. <laughs> I'll try and do this as briefly as possible because there's a, there's a, a school of thought in Marxist that says that it usually stems from the argument made by Trotskyists and others and and other left, even those to the left of the general Marxist-Leninists, particularly those, that capitalism is in a period of decay and uh, it's, it's incapable of, of amplifying the forces of production and it really is parasitical. And what it produces now are pieces of paper representing securities that uh, are really not real real capital. They're fictitious capital. It's fictitious capital because uh, they don't have any real assets behind it. On an empirical level, that's just not true. You know, factory output and, and, and manufacturing and services output is still uh, much greater in the developed world than anything else. And as a matter of fact, the, even if you just go by hard assets, the value of fixed assets in, in the United States and for U.S. capitalists and the U.S. manufacturing industry exceeds the uh, level of corporate debt. Um, but the notion is that somehow by trading these pieces of paper, capitalism is able to um, conjure up some image of, uh, as if it were, a blimp that had inflated itself uh, and uh, maintained this bubble that protected it from its, uh, from its inevitable decline. Um, I've never bought into that. Capitalism has periods of is, is cyclic and capitalism even in this period of overall decline which 
you can certainly point to that since 1970s, slower growth, uh, more inequality, transferring of social wealth up the, up, up the uh, social ladder and reducing the share of national income or, and global income that goes to labor. Still, it does that in cyclical terms and it's a real consequence and it's capitalism hasn't persisted simply because it's got all these, these paper zeros after its funny numbers on it. There, there's real value being produced by capitalism. The problem is that real value is just as ephemeral and just as vulnerable and just as um, self-destructive as the so-called fictitious capital. At a certain point, capital overproduces itself, drives down its own profitability, and has to destroy the means of production, devalue the means of production in order to right itself or give itself another opportunity. That is usually preceded by a speculative bout uh, and we can point to the uh, the mortgage-backed securities debacle of 2008-2009. That is usually preceded by a, a, a paper, uh, a burning of the paper, so to speak. But it doesn't happen because capitalism is fictitious, because capitalism has these real moments of expansion and decline. And part of those metamorphosis between that is the transformation of all values into mobile, circulable entities. And that's what this, that's what all these investment products do. They make the value that's been produced or is anticipated being produced circulable. They can circulate in the economy and they can allocate portions of surplus value. So I don't believe that, um, first of all, I don't believe a lot of what's called fictitious capital even functions as capital. Uh, the trading platforms, the secondary markets for bonds and stocks are not fictitious capital. They're not capital. They're simply trading platforms like the commodity pits in Chicago at the Board of Trade, where uh, contracts are made, are opened and closed, and it, and it helps establish the price. It, has, it establishes the price of exchange, which distributes the surplus value. So anyway, that's, that's about uh, as complicated as I can make it in two minutes. Give me another two minutes. I'll make it even more incomprehensible. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so I've had this dispute with a number of people, even people I'm friendly with, like Lauren Goldner and I used to argue about this all the time. He was a big, uh, at one time, uh, advocate of fictitious capital and uh, paper values. That the United States was simply producing paper values and uh, exchanging that against the real value produced uh, in the rest of the world. And it lends itself also to various uh, convergences or points of agreement with third worldism as if somehow, uh, you know, the global South has been unfairly, uh, or not unfairly, the production has moved to the global South and it is super exploited and the imperialist countries, quote unquote, you know, live by uh, collecting coupons, like cutting coupons off their bonds. I just don't think that's an, uh, a very sophisticated nor accurate view of how capitalism functions. Um, there's no argument that living standards in the uh, what's called the global south or the developing world are much less, but also the capitalism in those countries is much less, is much less developed, is much less refined, is much less... Um, engaging. And that's the limit of capitalism. 
That's that's because capitalism has its own contradictions that that prevent it from becoming this, you know, uh, developing everything equally. Um, it's just it's just uh, periodically this argument surfaces and being a contrarian uh, and trying to get thrown out of every place I've ever been. I take the opposite view. I know that's kind of relevant going on with because uh, like even I've heard about the shit going on with GameStop stocks and all that. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, that and that is, and there's swindle and, you know, all trade leads to speculation and every trader wishes he or she could be a speculator and not even ever, ever, ever have to see a physical commodity for, I mean, you look at all the con- the contracts and the, and, the, and the futures and the options contracts that are handled on the other markets, the border trade, Chicago Merkel Exchange, none of those ever um uh, ever reach fruition, they all get closed out by an offsetting contract. I I buy a contract to deliver um, beef uh, sides of beef at sixty dollars a side in November. When the day before the contracts due, I buy a contract to, to that means I'll take delivery of beef at fifty dollars a side. The two contracts cancel each other out, and I walk away with ten dollars on every, you know. Uh, how I was supposed to provide, but that's not capital. That's just distributing distributing part of the value that's already pumped into the market. So it's a whole misnomer to include that, call that stuff as fictitious capital. There certainly is fictitious capital. Uh, Bernie Madoff was fictitious capital. Uh, a Ponzi scheme is fictitious capital, but uh, uh, a syndicated loan uh, backing a uh, um, Dawu shipbuilding in Asia uh, are those bonds that IBM issues. That's not fictitious capital. That is a way of engaging real capital in real circuits of realization. Circulation, Circulation sweats, sweats money from every pore. That's, that's right. That's one of my favorite, favorite quotes from our Circulation sweats money from every pore. This is just your monthly now reminder to join the book club, which is available in uh, a link to join is available in the show notes. Uh, you can find our show notes on our website, which is anticapitalzero.wordpress.com, um, or also in the description, probably wherever you're listening to it, at least on like Spotify and SoundCloud, but I'm not sure on other platforms like uh, iTunes. But um, but either way, any links that you want, you can also get by emailing us at or does it explode at protonmail.com. And you just send him the draft. Try and try and clip him out saying something horrible, and I'll send him and be like, "Hey, is this good?" Just cut it down to nothing but him talking about defending Nancy Pelosi, and then send <laughs> oh, that to troll to troll him with. <laughs>